What scares you the most about the challenges we now face? Oh God, I have kids. I mean, I think about my future and I, their their future, and I think, holy smokes, I'm glad I'm middle aged. You know, there are times <laughs> where I think if you asked my parents this question when I was little. You know, they would have said the same thing, right? But I worry about the legacy we're leaving behind for children. But quite frankly, I worry about kids right now. You know, like child poverty rates are terrible. The situation, I'm going to date this podcast, but the situation with the separation of children from their families at American borders right now is devastating and traumatic. Like I just look at what's happening not very far away and I think how... How are we doing this to people? Not us immediately, but, but as, collectively. Uh, as, how yeah. is this allowed to happen in 2018? Have we not learned anything? But how can we be so cruel? And and then I... You know, but then we look back on history and we've done it before. We've done I it know. in Canada with First Peoples. Yeah. The Americans have done it with First Peoples. Did and with and Japanese taking, internment camps. That's like right. We, you know, the, the, it's, it's human beings. You know, the state overreaching and, and transgressing the rights of its citizens. Like we got to, are we not learning? Like, I don't know. We got to be better, right? We have to be better. We have communities of people without fresh drinking water in Canada right now. Like that's shame on us on that one, you know? Welcome. This is Craig Applegath and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st century imperative. These are, how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? In this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Pamela Robinson. Pamela is the Associate Dean of Graduate Studies and Strategic Initiatives for the Faculty of Community Services at Ryerson University, an Associate Professor for the School of Urban and Regional Planning at Ryerson, and a Registered Professional Planner. Her areas of expertise include urban sustainability, environmental design and planning, urban governance, and public engagement. Pamela is also a member of the geothink.ca research team. Her research and practice focus on urban sustainability issues with a focus on cities, climate change, and the use of open data and civic technology to support open government transformations. In addition to her research, Pamela serves on the board of directors of the Metcalf Foundation, has participated in four Metrolinx community advisory committees, is a columnist for Spacing Magazine, and is the editor of two books, Urban Sustainability, Reconnecting Space and Place, and Teaching a Scholarship, Preparing Students for Professional Practice in Community Services. I've admired Pamela's work in the urban sustainability space for a number of years, so it was a real pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with her about the challenges of the 21st century imperative. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You're considered one of Canada's preeminent thinkers on sustainable planning and are well known for co-authoring the book, 
urban sustainability, reconnecting space and place, and many other scholarly articles on sustainable planning. So when did you first know you wanted to become a planner, and at what point did your passion for sustainable planning emerge? Oh, so this one's good. So I was one of those people who all through university thought I was going to be an engineer. And so I was math and science and I did English. Um, I took one geography class, two history classes, only under duress. Um, and I got to university and I was supposed to do engineering and I deferred for a year. And I took all these really great social science classes. I took a politics of development class. I took art history. I took this course called Drugs and Their Actions. And I realized... I didn't actually want to be an engineer after all. So I stayed in political science at Queens um, and I did an undergrad degree. And when I finished, uh, my undergrad thesis was on nuclear nonproliferation, which is pretty funny. And the Cold War ended. Just I won't <laughs> ask you what you. That <laughs> <laughs> was a long time ago. It was when the Cold War was still a thing. Um, and when I finished undergrad, I knew my grades weren't awesome. And so I needed to upgrade a bit. And so I, um, I spent half a year upgrading my marks and I took a medical geography class and I thought, wow, this is cool. This whole spatialization of disease and pathology. And I thought, oh, maybe I do like maps after all. And in that year, I was living in a student apartment in Kingston and our toilet broke and I had to go find my landlord. And, you know, in those days, Kingston was so small, I could just go find the guy. Well, my landlord was a prof at the planning school in Kingston. His name is Godfrey Sprague and he was a heritage planner. And so his wife said, well, he's at this university fair. Just go find him. And so I ran around the corner to go find my landlord in person. And he was busy talking to students. And he handed me the booklet for the School of Planning at Queen's. He said, just give me five. Here, read this. Oh, talk about serendipity. And so I have this broken toilet and a landlord who's a prof. And I sit down. I start reading this thing. And I'm like, wow, this is, I, I want to do this. Because at that point, I had been accepted to Boston University to do a joint degree in international relations and environmental studies. I thought, okay, I'm not going to the States anymore. I want to be a planner. And so I really dug in and tried to get my marks up and basically harangued the planning school into letting me in. But it, it literally, I didn't even know what planning was until my toilet broke. And the other funny part of that story is that my then university boyfriend um, had, I ran over to his house, again, small town, to say, hey, this is what I want to do. And when I walked into his house, he had the same booklet. He, he, was, he said, you need to read this. And so he had the thing that I had in my hand. And I was like, okay, yeah, maybe I need to take this seriously. And so, you know, the thing about planning that appealed to me was that it allowed me to take my interest in politics and my interest in design, which was really nascent then, but growing, and my interest in environmental issues and ground them in a real place, um, which in hindsight isn't surprising because all of my work life before I became a university student, I worked in Parks and Rec at a local day camp. You know, I was very grounded in the city that I grew up in and connecting with people in real places and, and having a sense of where I was and how we impacted the places we lived was something that was in me, but I didn't know it had a place. And I'd always been interested in, I've always planned ahead of my life. I joke that I found a profession that pays me to be the better version of myself. And so um, the combination of the local scale of planning, I think, the ability to mix disciplines, but to, to really ground it in something real and practical mattered to me. I'm not an amazing theoretician. I really care about impact and, and about research that makes a difference on the ground. And so planning was this really great big tent that let me start to explore my interests. And I'm certainly a much different planner now than I started out being, but that's where I got my interest. And I think my interest in sustainability I think it's pretty innate. We have this hilarious... Well, it was presaged by you wanting to do a degree in environmental Yeah, studies. in global environmental yeah. studies. But we have this like crazy, precocious 
little artifact from my public school days. I wrote a letter to <laughs> to the governor of, of Ohio when I was in grade three or grade four, a letter to the editor complaining about acid rain when I was 10 years old, which we actually have a copy of in a family scrapbook. So um, I think my environmentalism started early. You know, I, I really liked toads and frogs when I was a kid and we lived in the country. So I think I came by that part naturally. But um, the chance to try to figure out how to improve people's quality of life and how to have a better ecological system in places where people live was something I was interested in. So there's real continuity from the beginning to your career now. Absolutely. Although, you know, I'm a different planner, I think, because I, I, my design sense has grown and changed over time. And my appreciation for the connection between policy and design has evolved in part because when you're a planner, everything you do is fieldwork. When I was on mat leave with my kids, I'd be in the sandbox at the park and I used to joke it was field work because everybody talks about where they live. Everybody has a place that they live. Everybody has an opinion about where they live. And so it's this wondrous profession because you can talk to everybody about what you do because everybody lives somewhere. Yes. And it's really clear that the planners I know all have that sense of the big picture, but also the tactile reality of yeah, the city. Yeah. It's one of the best things I love about teaching planning students is one of even if you don't want to practice planning, one of the great skill sets of doing a professional planning degree is the ability to work across scales, to go from big to small, to zoom in and zoom out, but also to be able to visually like think of a place. Like when I teach my students, sometimes if we're talking about a site, if they're like, "Oh, the corner of this street and this street," sometimes I'll make them pause so I can try and pull it up in my head. And I think the best planners I know are the ones who've really got worn out shoes or bicycles where they're on their multiple set of tires where you're out and about and you can visualize the place that you live and you work in, but also you have a sense of who the people are and how they live and what what are the things that they embrace and what are the things that, that challenge them too. So it's a really, it's an amazing space to work in if you care about people and you care about the planet. And do you remember when you were a student or an intern, the uh, thinkers that inspired you at the time? You know, I, I just I had this funny conversation with Ken Greenberg um, just a few weeks ago, who I now get to work with at the City Building Institute at Ryerson. But he was the first professional planner I ever heard at an academic conference. Um, we went to Waterloo and he was the guest speaker and he spoke and I was completely enchanted. I just thought, wow. He's so articulate. Who is this guy? You know, I, I had lived in Kingston my whole life. And so, you know, he was this big city urban thinker. And, and until then, you know, this was pre-internet because I'm that old, but you know, we didn't have access to YouTube and we didn't even have PDF documents when I was in planning school. Like we used to have to get together and write away to municipalities and send a check to buy hard copies of, of official plans. Like, and our library had some. And wait until they came in the mail. In the post. Yeah. yeah but there was <laughs> no, right. I remember like, that as literally well. <laughs> no PDFs in 1992. <laughs> Towards 1994, they started to come, but we, we were working off of paper copies of plans. And so, yeah, Ken, Ken inspired me in part because he just seemed so wise. And I think because he seemed really sophisticated from the world that I worked in. So he was the first planner who really, really caught my attention. And this was at a time of new urbanism, right? When Andres Duaney and Elizabeth right, Peters ever. Yeah. And that was very sexy. But Ken's work seemed really grounded. Yeah, I was just, I was going to say the same thing. I, I thought their new urbanism seemed almost superficial. As, as much about um, look and brand, whereas he was much more grounded in the reality of how things would work, yeah. how a city would really work. And he's a systems thinker yeah. and a designer. And that systems approach is one that I've always, it's the way my brain works. And so 
he was both familiar and aspirational at the same time. One of my favorite uh, quotes from Ken is when we're talking about density, and this is something we can talk about later in the podcast, density having such a positive impact on reducing carbon footprint and environmental footprint. He said, yes, but it's not how dense you make it, it's how you make it dense. Yes. And it's a catchy phrase, but it's also a very powerful reality about so many things we talk about. It's totally spot on. You know, we density is a very politicized word in a city like ours. And it's political because we fail to deliver on the public piece of the equation, right? That we we haven't provided the public realm and the quality and the depth and the the variety of public space people need to trade off having smaller private space for bigger public space. In the beginning of Metrolinx's existence, when Rob McIsaac was the chair of Metrolinx, he invited me to be one of the multi-stakeholder panelists to work on the first review of The Big Move. There were probably 45 of us at the time. And I remember hearing Rob McIsaac speak about how the only way we were going to shift our mobility profile in this region was to build the good transit first and provide people with a viable alternative, and then they could make better choices. There was no, he wasn't asking people to take a leap of faith on what, on on mobility choices. He was asking politicians and decision makers to say, we're going to invest and build, and then people will start to shift the mix. And I think that's the case with density too. And it's a little bit what Waterfront Toronto's done in an interesting way. They invested in the public space on the waterfront as a way of showing people that it could be livable. And so we need more of that lead with the public first. You can't build the public school last in a new development anymore. It should be the anchor. The community hub needs to be the thing that's built before the the residential development, right? Before the grocery store needs to be there before the people come. And that's a less reactive and much more proactive way of building. But, but I think, you know, it is how you do the density, but you have to recognize that if people are going to live in smaller private spaces, we need a wondrous public realm. And it's not just one big sexy park, right? It's everything from small to big. It's it's having great sidewalks. It's having mobility options. It's about having parks and places to be quiet. So we have to get better at public first. Yeah, I and think. it strikes me that the planning profession and planning academia has understood this for a long time. It's just the question of getting the um, political reality to connect with it. Because I don't think an everyday citizen or politician for that matter, really understands what a much denser, more populous city will be like. And they don't even believe it will happen. They, they see current reality as the way it will always be. They look to the past for yeah. the future. And I think planners are one of the few professions that actually have made it their business to look into the future and bring it back so that they can plan for it in the present. There's this great planning academic whose name is James Thorgmorton, who wrote this book called Planning as Persuasive Storytelling. And that phrase really resonates with me. And it's one I, I would say our profession needs to continue to work at, which is how do we persuasively, using evidence and creativity, help people see a better future? John Robinson, who I did my postdoc with again a long time ago, he's now at U of T, but was at UBC was the first person who introduced me to this notion of backcasting. Sort of forecasting, you know, where we take current conditions and extrapolate forward. And backcasting, you pick the future you want and figure out how to get there. And there are times where forecasting is a good method, but backcasting is such a powerful tool because it allows people to embrace the possibility of what might be, right? And it allows people to get beyond their rigid perceptions of what's, what's real right now and to really think ahead and to reach and extend 
and and to navigate a different course rather than just being like, well, tomorrow this is possible. Next week we can do this. If you have an ambitious backcast, I think it's possible to really start to make progress towards a better future. But we don't do that very often. And politicians almost never do that because they're scared to ask people about things that they perceive to be undeliverable. Yes, they have a four-year mandate. And of course, the private sector has a quarterly mandate. Right. Who uh, most inspires you now? What thinkers or thought leaders really inspire you right now? You know, increasingly... I'm at this point in my career, but also at this point in terms of, of trying to be, you know, a good human in the city of Toronto, where I'm trying to listen more than I talk, which is ironic given that we're doing this podcast. But, you know, I think about the work of, of someone like Jay Pitter, who's advancing social urbanism as work. And and if you listen to Jay or if you if you're in a room with Jay or you're fortunate enough to have a conversation with Jay, she's so powerful because she can convene hard conversations with people who often don't find themselves in rooms where hard conversations are needed. They're talking to themselves, but but people in power often don't extend themselves to go do that kind of listening. And so I'm moved by Jay's work, but I'm also moved by the voices of the people that she helps bring to light. Um, I'm moved by my students, which probably sounds corny given that I'm a professor, but I, one of the greatest gifts of being a university professor is that every year you meet all these amazing, smart people and they bring ideas and their ideas are fresh. And, you know, people like to talk about millennials as being lazy and disengaged. No, and that's not I, my I experience think, yeah, at all. Nor mine here no, at all. At all. I, I yeah. think, you know, I was traveling two Th- weeks Those ago. are, by the way, the boomers who've left this carbon mess for yeah, us. And <laughs> they're, they're threatened that. by the change. Yeah. But you know, I have this student right now. His name's David Alton. Oh, he's not my student anymore. He actually just graduated from playing school two weeks ago. And David, David is a wonderfully unique person who is a youth pastor at a church camp, but also really deeply embraces deliberative civic engagement work. And David did a master's paper about therapeutic planning and the power of the process of planning to heal and help. Um, and he he took a course with nursing students. There's a master's, uh, there's a therapeutic communications course in our master's in nursing program. And David was the first planning student ever to take it. And it it was a great intellectual fit for him. But but he really he took that and brought it back to our profession and wrote this wonderful piece of work that he's sharing wildly. He's amazing. And so you know, and David David's not the only one. I mean, I have every every year we have students who do wonderful things and go off and become really great and fine planners. And so. You know, I'm, I'm inspired by them. I'm inspired by my kids. I have a 15-year-old daughter and an almost 12-year-old daughter. And, you know, people like to gripe about teenagers. But if you listen to what they have to say, God, they're smart, you know. And, and people underestimate young people, especially children's ability to handle complexity. We like to dumb things down for kids. And I think we do so at our peril. We underestimate their ability to really wrestle with hard conversations. And if you... And the world's much more complex now yeah. for a teenager than it was 10 years or 20 yeah. years ago. But these kids are savvy. I mean, they're, they're not, you know, they need help and they need support. But, but, you know, one of the things I've learned a lot about teaching university for 20 years is that if you just let your students come forward and you create a space for their big audacious ideas to surface, it's a pretty amazing place to be. And so I'm inspired by those kinds of people. But, you know, I'm inspired by... Toronto, like, gosh, if you get outside the core and go to places like, you know, the East Scarborough storefront or the Thorncliffe neighborhood office or, you know, community groups in Rexdale, like, people are doing amazing things. Scarborough cycles, you know, 
Toronto um, Coalition for Active Transport and Access Toronto and, and folks in Scarborough are building a cycling culture in Scarborough. Five years ago, there was one bike repair shop. TCAT, T Toronto Coalition for Active Transport, did this map of where all the bike shops are. And I live on the West End and we have like bike shops and everywhere. coffee shops everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. And there was this map of Scarborough and I think there was one- Bike desert. One single bike repair shop in the entire Scarborough. And I was like, what? How? And you forget. And so now they're trying to build that culture and also build community capacity to do their own bike repairs. And I think like, you know, I'm inspired by the people who get stuff done. What about the notion of sustainability and sustainable cities itself? What's the most important thing we have to do to create truly sustainable cities? I'm going to go back to our book. And so the book that I, that I helped edit with um, Anne Dale and Bill Deschenko, who are two really preeminent Canadian thinkers, and all of our amazing authors, we focused on third-generation sustainability thinking, which is about place-based efforts to reconcile community, economic, and ecological imperatives. And this notion of reconciliation, I know, you know, today in 2018, reconciliation in Canada has a whole meaning with Indigenous communities of people. But at the time that we wrote that book in 2012, we were talking about the process of trying to hold community environment and economy together. The initial models of sustainability had the diagram like a three-legged stool, like the things right. were separate holding something yeah. up. And, you know, we were, I joke that sustainability is a bit like salad dressing. It's a colloidal dispersion if you leave it alone. Everything separates out to its parts, but you got to shake it vigorously, right, to try to make it an emulsion and come together. But it takes work. And I think one of the most important kind of underappreciated gifts of the framing of sustainability is this notion that there's interdependence between community and environment and economy. And we've done a really bad job, I think, of, of including the equity piece of sustainability, the intra and intergenerational equity bits, the notion that we need to do better for people who are with us now, but also that we need to do better for the people that are coming. The equity piece is the piece that needs the most work, but sustainability at least holds that space. And I think that's really important. Yes, un unless we can solve that, we're not going to be able to deal with the, the carbon no. issue. No, and we can't continue to people, allow... People just won't, will not have it on the Maslow hierarchy of needs. They people can't thrive while others suffer. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the biggest social problems since time immemorial. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we have to give up on it. Especially those of us who are on the thriving side instead of the suffering side. Right? Yeah, very much the case. What kinds of projects are you working on right now that will help move us in the direction of sustainable cities? So, or what you know, ones are you really passionate? You're working well, on so yeah. many projects. Yeah, well, you know, one of the, the things I'm doing that I'm, I'm proud of is that we're trying to train planners to be ready for the next generation of practice. We're not training planners to plan 1950s lollipop cul-de-sac, you know, suburbs. What we're trying to do is teach people for the reality of practice. And so we focus on diversity and inclusion and sustainability in our planning program, but also on systems thinking and on complexity and, and those things are really important, I think. So I, I'm proud of that. In, in the communities of practice, I sit on the board of the Metcalf Foundation. And this is, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be at the board table, but, but the foundation's work, especially, you know, across our three programs, which also fund in community arts and environment, are very powerful because that foundation has made deliberate and brave investments in communities on the front end of things. You know, Metcalf was one of the first funders of the Evergreen Brickworks Project and of the Witchwood Barns. Um, 
you know, the inclusive local economies work that, that Adriana Beemans is leading and the Sector Skills Academy are doing really important things in terms of trying to shift access to good work in this city. And so um, I can't claim credit for that work, but I'm really proud to be at that table. I look at the Greenbelt. You know, I was on the board of the Friends of the Greenbelt Foundation for two different terms, but for nine years in total. And none of us would have expected in the last provincial election that there would be so much affection and attachment to the Greenbelt that when the person who's now our premier talked about changing Greenbelt policies, civil society rose up and said no. No, And that was an amazing thing. But I learned a lot at that table about how to build a regional food economy um, and how to work directly with farmers who are amongst the wisest business people and the stewards of the land that we don't give them credit for. You know, farmers are, farmers are complex keepers of data. They own big infrastructure. You know, they understand climate change in an innate way that, that people sometimes don't give them credit for. But remember early on in the foundations work, there was a program with the Ontario Soil and Crop Association where we topped up people's on-farm environmental grants. And that money disappeared in six weeks. It was over a million dollar grant. And farmers, there were 36 things farmers could do to improve the environmental performance of their farms. And that money was gone, gone. like water on the desert. And it was really cool to see the kinds of initiatives farmers were taking. Um, and just to see, I wasn't surprised that they took their work seriously, but it was it was fun to watch that money disappear quickly. And, and I think right now, people that aren't involved in the food economy don't appreciate how fragile it is, oh, given what's happening with climate change and yeah. warming uh, south of us. We really do have some scary times coming in the next 10 to 20 years. We do. Where our farmers are going to be, our ability to be resilient. Well, and our ability to have crops that are are resilient. You know, that's where Vineland Research Center is really important because they're testing new kinds of crops that are resilient. And it's not, people may think it's all genetically modified, but they're looking at the capacity for new crops to come and take hold, about issues around helping farmers do succession planning around crops, it's really important, but we're, I think we, we forget just how lucky we are. Um, and we did it deliberately, you know, that we, the Greenbelt plan didn't just happen by accident. That took real political will and tenacity, but, but we have vital farmland that's top grade within an hour and a half drive of our big booming metropolis. And that's an asset that we need to protect and celebrate. And we need to put our money where our mouths are literally and support our local farmers because they are a vital part of the sustainability of our region. Yes, and, and I think at the time um, when the, I guess it was the McGinty government enacted the uh, Greenbelt Act, people were a bit skeptical about why it should be there. But I, I don't think now that they've seen the results that there's any skepticism. I hope it. so. I mean, I, I continue to be worried about its integrity. I mean, it's a it's easy when it's 1.8 million acres to think, oh, well, we could just give away 200,000. But it's an, a connected working landscape. And that's the thing I think that's really important to remember is that, you know, the Greenbelt Act and plan didn't put a bell jar over it and say, this is a conservation landscape. I mean, there are pits and quarries there. There are farmers, both small and large. You know, there are large industrial land uses on that on that landscape. And there's ecotourism and there are organic farmers and there are recreational properties and communities that people live in. And the complexity and the dynamic nature of that working countryside is so important to keep moving along. And we need to keep it intact as a whole. Where does the concept of smart cities fit into this discussion? 
So, you know, smart cities are an interesting new arrival. I feel like it's all we think and talk about right now, especially with, with my research world. This notion of what can technology do to change quality of life in our cities is one that the folks at the Sidewalk Labs from New York City as part of the Keyside Project with Waterfront Toronto are asking the question about all the time. But also the federal government is. I mean, we've just seen the federal government through Infrastructure Canada announce the 20 finalists in Canada's first Smart City Challenge. And they're an interesting array of, of projects. And, and the 130 communities that submitted across the country from big to small are all trying to figure out what role technology can play to solve problems that matter. I would say that our understanding of the role of technology is really new and and people when you say are you mean the planning collectively no no collectively the yeah the country citizens municipal staff um you know there are some key people who understand what what technology can you get a lot of people trying to sell municipal governments technology they may or may not need so i think this is one of the knocks against it yeah it's a it's a it's a brand for selling technology it's and that old expression when all you have is a hammer everything looks like like a nail. nail i've got some worries that people are throwing tech at problems that don't actually need technology um but we'll get there I think, you know, we... So what are the bright spots of promise in it that you're seeing? So, you know, I think um, on building energy, I think smart buildings offer real potential to deliver measurable and demonstrable greenhouse gas emissions. I think the interesting social challenge with that is, and I'd love to see this modeled, is that what we have is the ability to gather data on a scale that we've never seen before. But some of that data is, is ambient and environmental and some of it's personal and so I think one of the good kind of data habits that we should get into with all of these technology projects is showing how far we can get with ambient, non-identifiable data that's environmental and where we have to cross over into gathering individual data to make a difference. And I think it should just be a standard in terms of our modeling because the minute we move from broad, broad data that's not identifiable to personalized data that's identifiable to individuals, there are privacy concerns there are inclusion concerns, there are equity concerns, and that's a social conversation that we need to have that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of. But I, I, it'll be interesting to see in the realm of smart cities, in the sustainability triad of a community environment economy, the tension used to be between jobs and the environment. I think smart cities will start to show us tensions between environmental performance and, and individual human rights and privacy concerns. And I think that they're, they're resolvable but I think we need to be honest about what we're doing from the outset and we need to be good planners. We need to be, use the principles of open government about being inclusive and transparent and open. And we need to have those conversations early on during technological adoption so that we know what we're doing. And I, you know, in the work I'm doing around smart cities, one of the working phrases I use a lot is, what are our terms and conditions? When technology companies we want access to their technology. When you go to the app store and download a new app, you have to sign terms and right. conditions. That now no one we really have reads. all these tech companies coming to us saying, we want to be an innovation project in your city. We want to experiment on you. And I'm like, well, what are our terms and conditions? Right. What's our piece of this? What are we willing to give up and what are we going to hold fast on? And that's a civic conversation that's missing right now. Um, that we need to get moving and on. And needs to be better informed because I don't think people realize what's at stake. Right. No, I agree. And, you know, and I think, I think we all need to collectively become wiser as people in smart cities. I mean, cities were smart before technology existed, right? I mean, that's, the branding is kind of annoying. Um, 
But this notion of how do we get better at doing what we do is really important. I think the efficiency part of smart city is an interesting challenge because, you know, I'm a planner and you're an architect. We can think of perfectly designed, efficient places that are crappy to be in. You know, I joke, I won't name cities by, but there are capital cities of certain countries uh, that are very overplanned, that are incredibly sterile and boring and dull. And some of the best places are wildly inefficient and messy and illegal, you know, and, you know, they don't they transgress bylaws, but those make for great spaces. And so this notion of optimizing the city and making it, you know, we want to be efficient on energy use, but sometimes a bit of inefficiency or messiness makes for a great place. Well, also, given the kind of complexity that information technology can deal with, messiness should not be an obstacle to making great cities. It's when you can only do your calculations on a simple spreadsheet that people want to make it much more yeah. comprehensive and simple. But again, our, our, our habit is to simplify. Well, and we divert back to or revert back to the things that are easily quantified, yeah. right? We count what we can see. Some of the most important things that we need to wrestle with aren't easily measurable. And that that predates the smart city. If you look at urban indicator series, you know, they're rife. I always use this with my students. They'll all roll my eyes. But, you know, we measure food bank use. You know, food bank use goes up one year to another, does that mean we have more food insecure people or the people who are already food insecure getting the assistance that they need in a temporary way? I never know what to do with that data, right? So, you know, we need, but it's easy to count the number of people that access a food bank, right? Um, so we need to be careful about- How we measure. What we measure and deluding ourselves to thinking that our city is the sum of measurable parts. What do you think is the biggest obstacle to getting city governments to understand and come to grips with how to meet the realities of climate change? Politicians, <laughs> lack of lack of like lack of courage, um, lack of leadership. Um, so do how you, do we get over that obstacle? Well, part of it is we need to vote better. I mean, part of it's on us, right? Like we get the people that we elect, and so I think we, as the electorate need to show politicians that we will reward courage and bravery and experimentation. We need to not be impatient when everything isn't perfect. Um, we need to stand by people who try to do good things that don't always work. Because if we only reward what's perfect and possible, we're going to have tentative leadership. Um, I also think we need to extend the right to vote in the city to people who are residents here, but maybe not Canadian citizens. In a city as diverse as ours, that's an arrival city, I think that we really need to have a hard conversation about who's excluded from the process of picking leadership because of their status in our country. And we certainly have the technology to be more sophisticated about how we count people's opinion and votes. Stephen Johnson, who wrote Future Perfect, talks about how you could actually shift from the current first past the poll to getting people's opinions in neighborhoods and then building that into opinions from communities so that that would filter up in a way that was more representative of their ideas. Yeah, I would argue, though, that for that to work, we need a sense of our city as a whole. I've said this in other contexts recently, but we, one of the stories we tell ourselves in Toronto is that we're a city of neighborhoods. But I'm not sure, it's been 20 years since amalgamation, 20 years and six months, I'm not sure we really know who we are, like who, what we Toronto is, like who are we collectively as a city. I'm not sure we have that sense. And so... I, I'm a big believer in grassroots and, and small-scale interventions, but but we can't presume that the sum of the neighborhoods is good for the city as a whole because if you live you know, in High Park and have no sense of what it's like, for example, to try to get to work if you live in North Scarborough, 
I don't know if those things add up, right? So I think the kind of of scaling up can work in a good, vibrant, civic appreciation of what we are all together. But I don't know if we have that. So what do we need to do to get that? I don't know. I mean, I think we need to get serious about this question of who are we together in the biggest city in the country, which I don't know who has the bravery to lead that. I mean, this is a pretty fractured city. It seems to divide between 416 and 905. That's a common delineation. But I think it's more than that. Like if you think about last week, two little girls were shot in a park in Scarborough, right? They were, you know, stray gun bullets. Bullets weren't intended for them. Two girls were shot and cyclists died. I think a sign of Toronto as a whole, when people talk about those things together and about what does it mean to know that you're going to be safe and well in our city as a whole, when we can hold those challenges together, that's, you know, that's some better thinking. And I don't, you know, people, you know, I, I care about both, but we don't, we don't knit those things together. Right. And we need that kind of thinking is needed in Toronto, that systems thinking knitted together. We are all in this together. Who are we together thing I think is missing here. So maybe it's a combination of, having students from public school on up get lessons in civics as well as systems thinking. Because otherwise, I don't, how are they going to appreciate the importance of politicians and their role? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And the complexity that the politicians face. Yeah, I think that one of the things that we devolve back to is like, oh, we need online voting or we need polling. I think we need a massive... That's just a mechanism. Yeah, yeah. We need a massive pile of tools and processes um, and we need a deep political commitment to figuring out who we want to be as a city. But who, when has anyone asked us the question, who do we want to be in five years as a city? We do it, you know, we have like an official plan, which has a 20-year vision, but that's a land use plan. A land use is important, but it's only a platform, right? But this notion of who are we as a city as a whole is a really important question. So is that one of the roles of the university, uh, colleges? What, what's their role in this? I think we're part of it, but we're not the only ones because lots of people don't see us as places where they feel welcome or safe or belong. I think the public library is probably the most vital civic institution in that conversation. Because if you look at the map of Toronto, there are libraries in every pocket and corner of the city. And libraries, I mean, I'm biased because I, I'm on the Public Libraries Innovation Council, but, but libraries are nonpartisan. Libraries are places where you don't need to buy anything. You can just go and be, where you have access to all kinds of information just because you're here. Libraries have taken their notion of protecting people's rights and privacy seriously since before the kind of technology that we wrestle with now exists. And so I would say, you know, let's, let's let the library lead would be one of, my, one of my things. Are there any ideas or strategies you have seen lately that have caught your eye as being particularly smart and effective for dealing with some of the problems we face with respect to environmental and climate change issues? So I think I'm going to go back to the Scarborough Cycles example. Like, I think that's a really neat example of an active transport organization partnering with a community-based organization that welcomes newcomers. They did some really great work with the Bike Coast program about getting bicycles in the hands of newcomers. Um, many of them were Syrian, but they weren't the only ones. They had people work with newcomers to help them um, acclimatize to cycling in Toronto because lots of people have come from places where they rode bikes in their home, their home cities and towns and communities. 
but they also did work together to help people start to explore their city. And so that's a really neat bridging of environmental and, and social imperatives, I think. They help create a sense of belonging. One of um, our students, Yvonne Verlinden from the planning school, did some work where she gave participants in that program cameras and did a photo voice exercise where she asked people what it meant to have a bicycle and, and what how did their experience starting to feel like they, they belonged in Toronto change because of a bicycle. And the stories and the pictures that her participants shared were so powerful. And so that kind of joined up thinking where you go to people and listen to them and, and engage them and, and seek their wisdom is really important, I think. I know Toronto's full of all kinds of really cool grassroots initiatives. One of my research assistants just told me that he tried to sign up to do some fruit picking with Not Far From The Tree. They're a local yes. organization yep. that, they, that picks they fruit. They pick the apples off my tree. Yeah, and he was 40th on the wait list. So they're oversubscribed with pickers. To me, that's a really, that's a cool sign. You know, you look at the rise of urban beekeeping in the city and, and how farmers markets are thriving. You know, lots of really good examples of, of trying to get to people where they are and, and to do the kinds of things that matter to them. So I think more of those, but creating the capacity for people who have an idea to move it along is a really important part of the future of this city, I think. And how do we support individual ingenuity and collective action? A, a good city, I think a sustainable city starts to figure out how to move the support people need into the spaces where they want it. How do we make density work for us? Increasing density reduces the per capita carbon footprint and environmental footprint. And yet, right. as we were talking about earlier, um, if it's not done right, it's a disaster. So how do we make it work for us? Well, I, you know, we, I just came back from a trip with um, the Sidewalk Toronto Urban Fellows where we took um, them to Copenhagen and Amsterdam. And one of, you know, one of the most surprising things to me in both of those cities was how much land both of those municipal governments own in their cities. Over 80% of the land is owned by the government. And so the government has been a fierce negotiator in what happens with the development of its land. And so they have high expectations of developers um, and they expect affordable housing and they expect good quality design and they hold people to those outcomes. And so, you know, one of the things that we could do is, you know, both the city, the province, and the feds all own land. We could expect and demand more from the deployment of the public land assets that we have. That's one thing that we could do. Another thing we could do to go back to what I talked about earlier is, is to build the public investment first and then let the private money flow. And that, you know, how you do that, I mean, we have a huge cash problem, but we have to find better finance tools to front the money for the investment in the public first. We have to show people just how good the public investment can be and have the density be the piece of it. I think a basic tenet of, of our rethinking of density is instead of thinking about stories on buildings, we think about the number of new neighbors we have to support the local businesses that we really like. A tall building went up across the street from our house, taller than we probably would have liked. And living through the construction was no fun at all. But I just kept reminding myself, there's going to be 125 units of new people who will help support our greengrocer and help support our local businesses. And so that was, you know, when I was grumpy, I was like, we're getting neighbors. So humanizing what it means is important. But I also think for those of us who are lucky enough to own land or to sort of own land that we pay the bank for, if you're in a land ownership situation, I think acknowledging the tremendous privilege that you have and that thinking really hard about what a privilege it is to say not in my backyard because you actually have a backyard at all 
is an important yes. reality that we are very, not very confronting, yep. right? Like yep. if you're worried about protecting what you have, I think you need to have an honest conversation with yourself that asks the question, is my resistance to change coming at the expense of someone else having a safe and decent place to live? Empathy. Yep. What about the impacts of climate change over the next 10 to 20 years? Uh, climate change is going to bite. Oh, yeah. What do you see as some of the, the key things we need to be thinking about in the city as a planner? Well, you know, I think about the intensity of the storms that we've recently had. You know, like a week ago with the windstorm. Yeah, yeah, the urban tree canopy. You know, we've known for a long time we have a tree canopy problem. We're a city that loves our big old trees and we're not planting them. We have the saddest little street tree in our front yard that continues not to grow because the soil is crappy. And I just think about the lag between the big old trees and the lack of tree planting that we've done. And I think, you know, I don't know if you heard that. So the, better urban forestry. Better urban forestry, but preventative arborism, like it's daunting to bring an arborist in, but we, we need to work hard to protect the trees that we have. We need to make sure that the trees we have are safe, but we need to start planting new ones quickly. We're going to have a horrible lag time where we're going to have no big tree canopy and it's going to be really scary. I think about simple things like, those of us who use our own horsepower to get around, whether you walk or bike or, you know, you're on a skateboard or a scooter. The wind this spring has been daunting. You know, I've had some pretty, pretty hard rides into the wind on my way home from work. And, you know, we were laughing about the kinds of things you're going to have to wear to be able to, to, to ride. If you're a cyclist, the weather's changing a lot. I think that people's home budgeting is going to have to change. Like, both the extreme heat and the extreme cold, but also the fluctuations. Like our campus struggled with the temperature variance. The central plant really had a hard time keeping up with both heating and cooling. And, you know, in the rain that we just had on, on Monday this week, I don't know, we had a build the building that my office is in. We took the stairs down from the sixth floor and there was water running down our staircase from the roof because of the volume of the rain. And the building just wasn't prepared to, to absorb that capacity. And so, you know, in terms of impacts, everyday life is going to be impacted, let alone our food supply and, and local economic development. We go backcountry canoeing in the summer, and we've really noticed a difference in the conditions that we're camping in. It, it's, it's completely random, but, you know, we've, for, for we've example, seen really, really intense storms when we've been camping in ways that make us think we need a satellite phone because it's kind of scary to get to caught. be out there, yeah. but also we're wondering about weather predictive capacity because weather's changing faster. Um, I think about ski hills. You know, anybody skiing, you know, is is for sure the fun of people who are fortunate enough to be able to go. But but we have a whole winter recreational environment surrounding our city, where you know I don't envy anyone who's trying to make snow or keep snow on a hill. Yeah. In the winter. Yeah. Temperature fluctuations are yeah. so extreme now. And you think about our, our smaller communities that rely on, on seasonal tourism, whether it's warm weather or cold weather. I think it must be very hard to run anything that's tourism related in our region because the patterns of, of temperature and weather are changing so much. And so, you know, that's the full arc of everyday life. Is this life. a discussion that you're having with your students now? Oh, for sure. Yeah. But they, I mean, they know it. Yeah. People know things are changing. And People blame everything on climate change, but but I would say in general, there's a heightened awareness of, of how things are different. I think the challenge is just trying to get your head around what does it mean, right? And how do you get ready? And is there a conversation also about the opportunities for repairing the damage we've already done to the environment while we're preparing for the impacts? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on who you're talking to. Like if you look at 
some progressive organizations and municipalities, the discussion about resilience is a really important one. And lots of places people talk about how resilience has displaced sustainability and how it's the new organizing principle. Yeah, it's a very buzzy term right now. Yeah. You know, we have a chief resilience officer in the city of Toronto and, and, and other municipalities have those people too. But but I think in general, it's good to think about how do we become resilient. One thing that's become increasingly apparent to me is if you look at the history of cities, sometimes the most transformative moments in cities' histories have come after something terrible has happened, whether it's been a flood or it's been a fire. Like Hurricane Hazel changed right, the, the changed landscape Toronto, of Toronto. Yeah. Or, you know, in, in ways that made it much safer over time. And so we've got this notion of state of good repair for infrastructure investment where we replace things after its natural life has happened. But but I also feel like we need the list of things that if big things happened, are we ready to make those moves? And, and in my work at the university, you know, we're functioning in an environment full of change all the time. And my most overused metaphor this winter at work was that we need, you know, when you go to the grocery store and there's that half-baked bread Ace baguette makes, right, makes right. frozen baguette yeah, so, that you can pull the baguette pull the and, and, sort and of finish, finish it, it off in the oven. <laughs> we need a bunch of city building half-baked bread. We need it. Everybody needs it, right? Because you need to have conversations before things happen. Because if you have the lead time, you can have democratic, inclusive conversations, right? In an, if you have no ideas and something terrible happens, you're going to have an urgent response that may not meet the needs of as many people. But part of, I think, planning for the future, part of a sustainable city and part of a resilient city strategy is creating a wish list that emerges from a democratic inclusive process that really gets out and gets people's voices in that process so that you've got your half-baked bread is representative of the needs of all and not just the people who were able to respond after the emergency, right? And And just as important is... It's those times of crisis when people are willing to change. That's one of the most important memories I take away from urban design grad school was it's so hard to get things changed in an urban environment. Right. One of the ways is you have to line up all the vested interests, which is very difficult. Right. And the other is there's some emergency that allows you to change. People will listen. Right. And so that half-baked bread of these things ready to go when there is that catastrophe or emergency or, or key timing will allow us to make those changes. Well, and if the recipe for that bread was inclusive and equitable from the beginning, then deploying, putting the half-baked bread in the oven could be hope-providing, but it could also have a ripple effect in terms of a much more inclusive city as well, right? Because if people see... And I'm not wishing bad things, but even just when things, you know, something no longer works. If we go to the things that we created through a good democratic process, it could serve to reinforce and strengthen people's engagement in future conversations too, right? Because people can see themselves in it and they know that someone listened and somebody came to them and said, your wisdom matters. I want to listen. Let's figure out what we need to do together. But this is a less good process if you're not here. You are a vital part of our future moving forward, right? And what's missing from the conversation right now that we should be including in it? What are we, what are we missing in this conversation? I think part of it is that, you know, we're in this, with this terrible backlog and this austere government environment where, you know, we all know we've like underfunded our infrastructure work, right? So we're always working under duress and, you know, part of me thinks that's not going to change, but we can't use that as an excuse not to plan better. And so, so much of what we do in planning is focused on 
things that are going to end up in a decision on the council floor. And so we need much more speculative, ambitious processes for planning that have time and resources, but also a true commitment to not doing things the same old ways, right? Like we just, we need to say enough is enough in the way in which we plan and imagine and design our cities and stop talking about diversity and actually make it happen. And, and I, I don't profess to be an expert in how to do that, but, but we need to work with people differently. And people talk about empowering people. People in all four corners of the city are already empowered. But it's just the question is, who's missing from the processes that we convene formally? And that question of who's missing is one that we ask all the time inside our planning school, right? Who's missing? How do you create conditions in which those people feel safe and comfortable and welcome and, and appreciated and valued? Those questions matter. What scares you the most about the challenges we now face? Oh God, I have kids. I mean, I think about my future and I, their their future, and I think, holy smokes, I'm glad I'm middle aged. You know, there are times where I think if you asked my parents this question when I was little, you know, they would have said the same thing, right? But I I worry about the legacy we're leaving behind for children. But quite frankly, I worry about kids right now. You know, like child poverty rates are terrible. The situation, I'm going to date this podcast, but the situation with the separation of children from their families at American borders right now is devastating and traumatic. Like I just look at what's happening not very far away and I think, how how are we doing this to people? Not us immediately, but, but as, collectively, uh, as, how yeah. is this allowed to happen in 2018? Have we not learned anything? But how can we be so cruel? And, and then I, you know, but then we look back on history, and we've done it before. We've done it in Canada with First Peoples. Yeah, the Americans have done it with First Peoples so and, with uh, and Japanese taking, internment camps. That's like, right. You know, the, the it's, it's human beings. You know, the state overreaching and and transgressing the rights of its citizens. Like we got to, are we not learning? Like I don't know. We got to be better, right? We have to be better. We have communities of people without fresh drinking water in Canada right now. Like that's. Shame on us on that one, you know? What really worries me is that as things get scarier, as climate change begins to bite, that it will bring out the best in us, but it will also bring out the worst in us. And you can yeah. see that right now in, in countries around the world. Is it, it, it almost creates these poles of people that know what they can do to solve the problems and people that say, no, we know that it's being caused by outsiders or whatever yeah. the... The, the, the blame they want to assign. And it, that's creating real tensions across oh, yeah. I mean, the it, world. I think because of the complexity of the climate change challenge, it, it allows people to create all kinds of false connections between cause and effect. And I mean, it's our lack of basic scientific literacy is really scary. Like we, it's shocking how many things we allow to continue to have a life that are, are patently untrue. You know, it's frightening. Margaret Heffernan, in her wonderful book, Willful Blindness, actually it's a very depressing book, but it's so well written, talks about our almost infinite capacity to ignore reality, to ignore facts. Our brain is biologically wired to omit the truth, or not omit the truth, but not take a court of it. So what do we do about that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we I mean have, there's no answer to that question. Since the but history it, it struck of humankind, as, we've made up stories 
to help us make sense of things that we don't understand, yeah. right? I mean, myths, fairy tales, some religious things are all about stories we tell ourselves to help console ourselves when things are too complicated for us to be able to understand. I wonder about that in combination with technology like artificial intelligence and machine learning. Like when we start placing the obligation for wrestling with complexity into the hands of technology, does that part of our brain get even less capable of dealing with things? I'm not a cognitive psychologist, but I would like to know the answer to that question. Are we, when we devolve complex thinking to computational machines, what's it do to our ability to wrestle with complexity? I don't know. Uh, yes, and the even more important question, I think, is does it allow us to easily put it off on technology when we should be wrestling yeah, with internalizing it ourselves? It. Yeah, you know, so you asked me, like, wh how do we overcome willful blindness? I think, you know, one thing, this is a really basic thing. I'm not sure this example will hold up, but, but we have this funny tendency when people are sad or upset to give really short, trite answers, like everything happens for a reason, right? And, you know, just trying to hold the space to let somebody be upset without trying to fix things. That's a really important interpersonal skill, I think, like to be present for someone, um, but let, but not try to fix everything and dispatch the awkward thing quickly. If we scale that up, it's not unlike the willful blindness, right? Like we, we need to be able to be present in the sea of complexity and not be daunted by it. And part of it, I think we can overcome by pure grit determination. It's like, I'm, I'm not going to look away. I'm going to stay. And I will persist and I will work at the coal face, probably bad metaphor. I will, you know, I, I will keep trying in the sea of, of complexity or I will, the thing I need to be motivated by isn't necessarily the impact, but the joy I get from working with other people on something that matters, you know, changing what we need from something, from a process. Maybe, I don't know if we can, we can will it, but you know, people have some grit. People can do some things when they really want to. And so maybe we need to reposition what we need out of our collective action, right? Or out of our behavior change. Maybe we need, you know, rational choice theory and political science talks about people are self-maximizing in their behavior. And I've never really understood how that works in sustainability because lots of people make decisions that aren't in their own best interest, but they're in their collective interest. And maybe the rational choice people would say, well, if the collective interest is in their own interest, that's why it works. But, but I actually believe that people can trade off what's good individually for them for what's good for others. Like people do this. We see examples of this. People do it, right? Yes. And, and, and I think although you'll have certain percent of the population maintain a willful blindness to what they see around them, there'll be a core of people that yeah. will, will see opportunity solutions and make the effort to implement It's the them. coalition yeah. of the willing. That's right. You know, like you just... You know, you can throw a lot of time and energy and despair at the 20% or whatever, the 2% of people who are never going to change. Or you can invest your time and your goodwill and your spirit in people who are moving forward. And trying to change people's minds, that's exhausting work, right? So part of it is about keeping better company, I think. So one of the biggest challenges we face, and I suspect there'll be a lot of willful blindness surrounding it, is the huge challenge of climate refugees. The UN is forecasting by 2050, there being 250 million climate refugees. So what do you think the role of cities is in coming to terms with that and dealing with it? Well, I think it depends on where those cities are, right? 
you know, like what's the role of Nairobi? It's different than what's the role of Toronto. Toronto. So I think we need to have a really important conversation about being ready to welcome people because we have the capacity to do it. But we need to think about the people who are already here that we aren't doing well by first. So we have to hold two things at the same time. But getting ready to be truly an arrival city is a really important thing. And, you know, we saw, if you look at, at what happened when Syrians needed a place to come, you saw people stepping up. But the scale of the welcoming of Syrians <laughs> pales by comparison With to what's, what's about needed. to so, happen. So the question is, how do we scale that up and how do we accelerate it? Well, at the same time, having hard and honest conversations about people who are already our neighbors and our, our fellow city residents who are struggling already. So it, it's both things at the same time. I think we have to get honest about equity inclusion issues in our city, and we need to fundamentally restructure what we think and do. And we all need to get better at thinking in this climate change world, what are the things I have that I can share? It's that potluck mentality. What am I going to bring to the table, right? What, are, what, do I, what can I offer? What do I have? And there's certainly an opportunity for Canada. It's underpopulated. I yeah. mean, if you read Doug Saunders' Maximum yeah. Canada, I mean, we should be a population of 100 million people and yeah. we're somewhere 37 million. Yeah. So it sounds like that one of our problems is soluble with immigration of climate refugees. Yeah. I mean, as long it, as we can figure out how to make it work. Yeah, and how do we make sure it's not just about physically landing here, but it's about coming here and having a life that's good, right? Children having access to good public schools, right? People having access to fresh and healthy food. People being able to move about in their city without having to spend three hours on 12 buses. You know, like we need to get ready for more people. And when we think about our infrastructure planning, you know, we do this modeling, right? Are we modeling for climate refugees? And significant and and specific bursts of population growth like are we ready and do we have a building stock that's adaptable you know are we are we building flexibility and and adaptability into the way in which we build our communities not as much as we probably should be are you optimistic about our ability to meet these challenges going forward i'm both optimistic and sad you know it's it's hard because I'm so, it's hard to live here and not recognize all the things that we're not doing well. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm privileged enough to work in a space where new ideas are generated all the time. And some of those ideas actually find their way into action and make a difference on the ground. And so I, I, I still hold this romantic notion that we will have leadership that will help us get there. Because I think people want not everybody, but lots of people want to be part of something bigger and better than themselves. Like that hope still exists, right? If you look at, I don't know, like President Obama, for example, you know, he tapped into something that lots of people really wanted. They wanted to be inspired. Um, our current prime minister, you know, engaged all kinds of young people in a way that, that people were surprised before. by. You know, I, in our most recent provincial election, in the lead up to the actual the day when the election took place, one of the things that I took such great hope from on good old Facebook was my former students who I'm friends with, so many of them were deeply and politically engaged in poignant and powerful ways. And I loved how active they were. And I thought, this is great. And they, and they weren't always on the same page or voting for the same parties, but I love that they put themselves out there, you know? And so, so that part makes me hopeful. What advice 
would you offer listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference in meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative? I'm going to go back to my earlier comments about voting and elections and, and expectations of people. I think that one of the ways we collectively build the social license for the kinds of innovative and progressive government leadership that we want is we ask our, ourselves hard questions about when we react badly to things that don't go well, right? So part of it is a, we need to check our reactions. And so we need to step up when people are trying innovative things and stand behind them. I, I'm always reluctant to offer advice because I don't feel like I'm a work in progress and I'm still trying to figure things out for myself too. But, but I would say that part of this notion of the collective is, is just being active and exploring and trying new things. And, and I know um, not everybody, people's lives are busy and lots of people are so overworked and, and just trying to do so many things to just keep the basic things moving along. But but being open to new experiences in the city that you live in and, you know, whether it's visiting a new part of the city or, or meeting new people, but just trying to really be active about being part of the learning process about who are we as a city because we're changing so quickly and it's a persistent process of change. I think that the more we all try to keep up with with really appreciating who we are, the better the hope is, I think. And I think that, that people need to be deliberate about the decisions that they make. There's this whole movement um, out of the United States called the Anchor Institution Movement, which I learned about from Colette Murphy, who's the executive director of the Atkinson Foundation. And, and in Anchor Institutions, there's this recognition that in the Rust Belt, which is where it started, that eds and meds, hospitals and, and universities and higher education facilities are the last good employers left. And so there's an onus on those institutions to take their power of procurement and employment really seriously and to try to leverage every dollar they spend and every employment decision they take and every procurement decision they take for the most impact as close to home as possible. And that notion of, you know, how do you hustle hard on behalf of the public good is one that we all need to take seriously, right? Like when you spend $1, how does it have $5 worth of impact? If you value, you know, the mom and pop grocery store up the street, go spend your money there. Like you, you want to use whatever money you have to the highest, best use as possible, right? Those kinds of decisions really matter, I think, in a city like ours. Making a difference on a personal level. But really being mindful that you have whatever power you have, you try to put that to the public good when you can and how you can. You know, you, you double down on the things that benefit the community as a whole. Those things matter. Changing gears a bit. I have a number of favorite questions I like to ask all my guests at the end of the interview. First question, what books related to sustainable urbanism do you most often gift or recommend to people, or any books for that matter? So, you know, the one I, I go back to, and it's not a new book, I've talked about this a lot recently too, is Barbara Kingsolver wrote this book called Animal Vegetable Miracle. Um, and it was about her return to her family farm in Appalachia. And you know, there, there's so many, there's two chapters in that book that really resonate with me in funny, but different ways. One of them is the one that it's written kind of like a calendar. And I think it's the August chapter where she talks about zucchini season and how it's the only month of the year where everybody locks their cars, because if they don't, they're going to have a car full of zucchini, which I just, I think it's really funny, but it, I don't really know what the lesson is, but it's just, it's this hilarious place-based 
funny thing that people do. And I, I, I like peevish behavior, but this idea that you're going to end up with more zucchini than you know what to do with is, it's an interesting- Which happens all over North America. Yeah, everyone's zucchini, <laughs> you know, it thrives. But the other one is this interesting one where she talks about working with her child. Um, one of her, her daughters wants to raise chickens. And so there's this interesting family conversation about they loan their daughter money and it's about keeping books. And it's an interesting, it's just an interesting thing about how do you help somebody get going and when do you help, but when do you, when do you stick to certain principles that really matter? And that kind of thoughtful, deliberate approach to, to a local economic decision is really interesting to me. But I, I like that book because somebody made a big change and they thought about it reflectively and they wrote about the highs and lows and, and it was it's just an interesting reflection on what it means to try to live a different life, I think. And so that, I think there's a lot in there for people at different, different points in their life. And we'll get the reference for that and put it in yeah. the blog. Cool. Yeah. Second question. If you had the power to implement one change, one innovation, or one policy in cities around the world that would have the effect of significantly reducing CO2 emissions or helping cities adapt to climate change or helping cities repair environmental damage our species has already caused, what would it be and why? You know, increasingly, I keep coming back to decent, affordable housing for everyone. I think that we, we fundamentally have to find new ways for people to have a decent place to live. And if you look at that through the lens of sustainability, what that includes is, for example, in a city like ours, where you could have, you could grow some food close to home, whether it's on your balcony or in a community garden and have access to, to fresh local food that's affordable would matter. To live in a building that's smart, and I have smart in air quotes, smart enough that you have access to fresh air, that the heating and the cooling is provided in a way that's both environmentally um, non-detrimental, but also affordable, right? So we use the best of passive and active design to create really healthy buildings for people that are great to live in, but also not at odds with their ability to continue to live. And that, that the way those buildings are designed grow and change as people's family circumstances evolve over time. I mean, one of the most valuable things we have in a sustainable city is a true sense of community and connection. And if people start in one place and have to leave because they no longer, you know, they've achieved enough economic means that they no longer qualify for the housing that they, that they found themselves in, we shouldn't make those people go somewhere else and start all over again because they've built this whole ecosystem of people around them who help them thrive and, and, and they help each other. What we need is a flexible housing situation in which we just keep building more affordable housing so those people can stay in place, whatever their circumstances are, but other people also have good places to live too. But I, I really, if people don't have anywhere to live, and they don't have access to healthy food. I mean, those are two basic tenets of a sustainable city that are much different. And if we start in the home and people thrive at home, I think other things will start to look after themselves. And people's attachment to their homes and the place the homes are in also give them a, a sense of willingness and courage to actually make a yeah. difference environmentally. They care about the environment because it's their environment. Yeah, and they, they feel welcome and they feel safe. And that together, as they've built relationships and community, they have the collective ability to make bigger structural changes, right? And to advocate and implement the things that they need done because they're still in place. You know, I think about, 
you know, when we do revitalization of, of communities, you know, we move people out, build new things, and then people come back. But, but when we move people out, the social bonds that they've created, they're hard to reproduce, right? And I mean, I don't know what it's like to come from another country and come here, but, you know, if you've come from away and then you live here and you make connections and you don't have your family here, you're building a new family in the community that you're in, displacing people's hard, right? We want to keep the strongest ties thriving, um, but people need access to good places to live and they need access to good work and they need access to good food. And so the equity piece and the inclusion piece of sustainability, it the ecological will flow from well-being, mm-hmm. I think, in part. Mm-hmm. Third question. If you were provided with a full-page spread in the Sunday New York Times that you could fill with any content you wanted, what would you do with it? What would you say? What graphic or images would you use? This one's tough. But fun. It is fun. You know, probably right now, I would give it, you're going to kill me. I would give it to somebody else to help them seize the day to tell their story, like a community-based organization. How would you choose them? Oh, I don't know. I'd probably just pick one and hope it was so successful that the New York Times would just go to them and stop coming to people like me. I don't know. I'd probably go to Jay Pitter and ask her, who who should we give it to? But I think, you know, this notion of, of trying to help bring to light the amazing things that people are doing that aren't on people's radar. People are cynical right now, but people are still moved by the power of people getting things done. And and there are so many things happening that aren't on people's radar. So I think, I think what I would do is try to find, I think there are many worthy people or organizations that I would give it to, but I'd probably pass it along. Um, because, you know, frankly, like in my world, I'm lucky. Like I have access to sharing the stuff I do. And I'm not, I, I would try to share the space, I think, with someone and give it away. Um, but I would ask other people to pick it. I wouldn't pick it because then my bias would be embedded. I know I didn't really answer your question, but honestly, I think that's what I would try to do right now. But a non-answer is just as interesting as an answer. Yeah, but it, I think what it's about is about recognizing that a sustainable future, I think, needs to be populated with the ideas that are out there, but not yet widely connected to, right? People like me can help, but we're not the only ones. And maybe one of the reasons why we are not as making as much progress as we should is that we haven't reached hard enough to listen to different voices, right? Like this notion of a democratic process really matters. And maybe that's the muscle we need to exercise more, which is to double down on really working hard to get more people's wisdom in the process and recognizing it and giving them credit for it. That quote would make a good piece of copy. To wrap up, do you have anything to ask of our listeners that would help them make a difference? You know, there's this methodological thing called the ecological fallacy, where you take this experience of an individual and you scale it up to the population of a whole, as a whole, right? So, you know, if you're the kind of person who doesn't use a library because you buy books, that doesn't mean you still need to invest in the library because the library matters, right? Like to embrace that other people have wants and desires that are different than yours and that you should support them because they matter to other people is really important. So don't 
extrapolate your life. Don't assume that everyone's like you. And just because it's not a thing for you, it's not a thing for other people. Or that your single preoccupation is more important than other people's needs and desires, I would say, is really important. And we all do this. Like, I'm not the model of perfection on this at all. But I think, you know, learning to recognize that in a city like ours, there are complex series of wants and desires and starting to gain an appreciation for those things. I'm trying to do that. You know, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we had the Chief Justice come and talk to us about what it meant to do your homework as a settler and how the onus is on us to start to learn. It was very, very powerful words from Justice Sinclair, right? That, that we, as the people who came and settled, need to take it upon ourselves. We can't keep going to Indigenous people and asking them, what do we need to do? Part of it is we need to do our own homework, right? That's really, like I think about that almost every day, right? What's the homework that we need to do? And that's on all of us, but especially on those of us who are lucky and who have food and a roof over our heads and good jobs. So in terms of advice, you know, I think, you know, if anyone's listening to a podcast, if they're still hanging in, but it's like, I'm good on them for having patience. But, but the other bit is just to keep learning and to be open to new ideas and, and to not be unnerved by the things that you don't understand. Like, don't turn away from the incomprehensible. Lean in on that one, right? Like, I'm trying to learn about machine learning. <laughs> I'm trying to learn French. You know, I'm grinding away trying to learn French. For We went to France on a sabbatical. We were very lucky. But I keep going to French class since I've come back. I'm terrible. I have like a crap accent. I'm like, I'm awful. But I'm like, I keep grinding Lean away. In. Yeah, you right. know, like, and so I think like, don't be daunted by what's hard or, you know, or don't be daunted by the impossible. If you're, I mean, that's easier, easier for someone like me to say, but, but if you're, a person like me, just keep learning and be open. And and don't don't be so thin-skinned about ideas that you don't understand or embrace. Like clearly, in terms of electoral politics, we all have a lot of listening and learning to do. We are many people on different pages. And so I think learning and, and staying active and trying to be open-minded to find real points of human connection. I don't know. I guess it's trite, but it's, I think it's part of what no, makes city a city, right? Like we're all, cities are these great celebrations and combustions of a lot of people in small spaces. So we got to keep working at being better together. That's a lovely place to finish off. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website. Until next time, thank you for listening.